Hello everyone, Happy New Year, and welcome to the very first Ronjiru Japan episode of 2021. I'm happy to introduce our first guest of the new year, Timothy Horniak. He's a freelance writer, author, and journalist who lives here in Japan. For some 20 years now, he's been writing about a stunning range of topics related to this country, with his work appearing in various media and publications around the world. He's agreed to join us to talk about writing, journalism, and robots, and more. Our guest today is Timothy Horniak. I'm your host, JT, and this is Ronjiru. Let's discuss Japan. Timothy Horniak, thank you very much for joining us on the Ronjiro Japan podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Very good. And Happy New Year. And to you. You are my first guest in 2021. And you're the perfect first guest for 2021 because of the wide range of topics that you continue to cover in all of your work. And you have, a, you have insights into everything and maybe even some insights into what's up and coming for 2021. So uh, I'm really happy that you're here. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, great to see another uh, podcast uh, about Japan happening and um, I hope I can answer some of your questions uh, satisfactorily. <laughs> I always start out usually with the same couple of questions, so I'll start out with this one. What brought you to Japan? Well, back in uh, the 1990s and perhaps uh, earlier, um, uh, we Canadians could um, apply for what was called a working holiday visa. Mm -hmm. uh, these may still exist, so I thought it would be fun to do that. So in 1999, I applied for one of these working holiday visas and, and came to Japan. And um, uh, that was how I got into the country initially. Um, my interest in Japan goes back much farther uh, to, I guess, the 1980s or 70s, perhaps, mm -hmm. when there was a lot of um, interest in uh, Japan in terms of North American pop culture. I see. So um, <clears throat> you saw things on TV like uh, the series Shogun. Oh, yes. Uh, James Clavell's uh, series. Yeah, that was that was quite popular back in the day. And then later on, um, Japan, uh, because of its economic uh, power and uh, cultural, uh, you know, interest, um, started uh, manifesting in, you know, comic books and TV shows. Like one TV show you may remember from North America was called The Master. Well, featuring yes. ninjas uh, yes. and uh, Lee Van Cleef, uh, etc. So as a kid, uh, those were quite compelling to me. And because I was already interested in, in kind of fantasy series like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, Japan became a kind of fantasy land on Earth mm -hmm. uh, that I dreamed of one day visiting. And in, in 99, I was able to come here. So that was... Um... 1999 that brought you here, but and you were interested in it before. I know you've done a lot of travel writing since you came here, so you must have had the opportunity to travel all over the place outside of the big cities as well. Um, that's right, I've been to um, all 47 uh, prefectures in oh, Japan, all 47 of them. Yeah, that's right. Part of that was for Lonely Planet, 
uh, wow. travel guidebooks that I used to write uh, for. I used to work on the, uh, you know, Japan and uh, Tokyo guidebooks, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cool thing about that job was it brought me to some uh, really way out uh, corners of the country that are not often uh, visited. Uh, for example, the Ogasawara Islands, uh, which are part of Tokyo, but about a thousand kilometers south of, of downtown Tokyo. It was a brilliant article, by the way. It was a brilliant article. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, an incredible experience. I highly recommend going to the Ogasawara Islands. You do have to take a ferry to get there, which is uh, quite long. But um, yeah, just a, a fantastic uh, place to go. And uh, thanks to uh, that gig working for Lonely Planet, I was able to go there. Yeah. What did you think of what was your impression of some of those, um, uh, the people in some of those places outside of the again, outside of the larger cities? Always warm, uh, hospitable, really uh, kind and um, interesting too. For example, in Ogasawara, that uh, particular group of islands was uh, originally colonized by whaling fleets. And uh, it, it was originally an American uh, possession. And uh, to this day, you can uh, find um, descendants of those people who call themselves Bonin Islanders, which was the name of the... Uh, of the islands back in the day. Uh, and I met one fellow who was running um, an inn uh, mm -hmm. on the main uh, island there, um, Chichijima. And this fellow looked exactly like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> and uh, he called himself a Bonin Islander instead of a, a Japanese person. That was mm -hmm. his identity, in other words. Uh, and so he and a couple of other um, people I met there uh, presented this aspect of uh, Japanese people that I'd never known about. It was absolutely fascinating. Neat. My next question is going to sound like a strange question, but it's one I'll ask anyways. Why writing? Yeah, well, um, that's easy question to answer, actually. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I was able to spell and write with ease. I don't know why. And um, I was always interested in, in books, literature, and storytelling. And so when I got to um, university, I started um, going into, or I went into English literature. That's what I studied. And uh, when it came to time to graduate, I thought, okay, what am I going to do with this degree in English literature? I should do something somewhat practical because I don't really want to go into academia. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go into journalism. Right. And I took a degree, a master's degree in uh, journalism in Canada. Mm -hmm. Which eventually accumulated in your career as a freelance uh, writer. That's right. Yeah. Why, uh, why, so, why freelance? Why freelance? Yeah, good question. Um, well, as you may know, um, the uh, media industry over the past several decades has been uh, undergoing a, a period of uh, you know retrenchment and uh, uh, upheaval um, due to new technologies like the internet uh, and so but even when the internet was uh, relatively new it was still un undergoing a period of consolidation with uh, closures of newspapers and uh, other media outlets. And so I uh, thought that um, because of maybe my personality in, in, in some respect and also because of the 
you know, the economic situation surrounding journalism. Uh, freelancing was maybe more suited to me than a, you know, full-time uh, gig, which I have done in the past and, and it was great, but I just know that so many jobs in journalism are so insecure. Uh, there's always another round of layoffs around the corner that you have to watch out for. You could lose your job relatively easily. Nice. So if you're a freelancer, you have, you know, more job security over the long run, maybe month to month. Yes, your income goes up and down, but over the long run, if you have a bunch of clients that you can nurture and cultivate uh, and take care of, then you can look after yourself and maybe not worry as much about uh, losing uh, your revenue over the long term. So I decided uh, freelancing was something that suited me. And of course, you know, people talk about the, you know, the freedom that you get as a freelancer. Uh, yes, that's true, uh, which is wonderful. I can spend more time with my, my family at home rather than, you know, schlepping off to an office downtown. So that's great. I've, I really enjoyed it. Right. Um, again, I've known, I've read a lot of your stuff over the years and you write about a vast number and, and breadth of topics related to Japan. You write food and culture and travel, of course, and um, uh, uh, po politics sometimes, and uh, science and technology. <laughs> Robots, we'll come to those in a minute. And you've even covered um, Nobel Prize winners, I believe. Uh, plus, you write <laughs> haiku. And I understand you also write songs. And yes, you're a photographer. Right. Um... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Are are you, oh, sorry, are you one of those people who seems to be interested in absolutely everything? <laughs> <laughs> those amazing people who don't have anything that they don't like. <laughs> well, um, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, there are some things that, that I'm not as interested in. For example, you know, Japanese pop culture. Uh, is not really my bag per se. I, I mentioned that on Twitter today that, you know, for example, I'm not a fan of like cosplay. Right. However, I just came across an article about the leading cosplayer in Japan making a salary of something like um, more than 485,000 US Whoa. dollars US uh, per year. So even though you may not be especially interested in a certain uh, aspect of the culture here, there are some fascinating elements about, you know, you know, the economy surrounding it, for example. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about Japan living here as a writer, I find is that uh, not only is Tokyo uh, a city that you can never uh, grow bored of, just like uh, Dr. Johnson said about London back in the day, sure. but uh, Japanese culture itself and the entire country of Japan has so many interesting facets that you can uncover. Uh, the more you spend time here, the more you know the culture, the more you can dig into a certain world. For example, if you become interested, let's say, in uh, no theater, you know, that's an entire world uh, and, and history of traditions and, and, and competing traditions and, uh, you know, protocols, etc. that you can learn in the vocabulary and, and go, go to no plays. You know, it doesn't have to be that. It could be like, you know, drift racing up in the Tokyo Hills or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, so mm -hmm. subcultures, uh, historical traditions, uh, performing arts, um, you name it. There's just so much here to uncover for anyone who's curious. Um, you kind of deflated my next question, which is good. I'm sorry. My next question was going to be, 
out of all of those millions of things, of topics that you write about, is there a subject that you find the one you'd love to, to write about the most? Uh, I, I would, I, I'm very interested in, um, it doesn't have to be a certain subject per se, but perhaps a theme would be the way that the past and the present, perhaps the future, mm -hmm. merge in, in Japan mm -hmm. and how they create uh, interesting uh, phenomena, you could say. Uh, what's compelling about living in a city like Tokyo is that it has this uh, very intoxicating blend of uh, the ancient and the modern. You can go and visit a Shinto shrine or a Buddhist temple that's been there for centuries and then turn around the corner and you see you know, a bullet train racing overhead or amazing new architectural uh, masterpiece. Uh, you know, it, there's that contrast. It's, it's almost like time travel. You can almost like mm -hmm. have your own Back to the Future DeLorean and cruise around Tokyo mm -hmm. and, and you're just kind of jumping into the Edo period or the Meiji period, etc. And then back into the 21st century. And, and so the ways in which um, those influences, because we have to remember that uh, unlike many other uh, industrial countries, Japan was essentially a, a feudal uh, state until the 1860s, which is very late, right? So that's why we have the you know remnants of this uh, samurai uh, culture that existed here for centuries, and that does manifest itself here and there. And so it doesn't have to be you know anything you can see in say the city. You can perhaps meet an interesting craftsperson who is the ninth generation uh, doing a certain, let's say, lacquer work or uh, tradition in pottery or back to the performing arts like kabuki actor or something like that. So, and this is all going on, a tradition that's been continued and handed down for centuries is happening in this, what people call a hyper-modern city and the largest uh, metropolitan uh, conglomeration in the world here in mm -hmm. greater Tokyo so it, it, there's, if you're a writer, it's just like a, a, an infinite feast, you could say. It's, it's one of the most common things that uh, people who've come to Japan, to, to Tokyo for the very first time, what they say is, how can it possibly be in one of the most technologically advanced countries and one of the most modern cities in the world that right beside a superstructure, there can be a little mom and pop shop that's still making those traditional buns or something. The contrast between the old and the new or the traditional and the futuristic is one of the first things that people say when they come here. That's right. And it's, it's interesting to see also how that uh, phenomenon sort of shifts around the city, uh, like um, depending on where the, the growth and uh, the next phase of um, Tokyo's urban development is happening. For example, uh, you know, Shiodome uh, was was a big growth uh, hub or in terms of new construction, yes. you know, some, I'd say 15 years ago or something like that. And then it shifted to places like, you know, um, uh, Toranomon Hills recently. Uh, but, you know, if you go to somewhere where the, to the Tokyo Skytree mm -hmm. in the eastern part of the city, Oshiaga area, there, yeah, you can see little mom and pop shops around this giant futuristic tower the largest um the tallest freestanding tower in the world i believe mm -hmm. and so that the cool thing about tokyo skytree is that the area around it has not yet been totally 
colonized by uh, new developments and shopping malls, etc. There's a little bit of it, but they're in the side streets. You still find those mom and top mom and pop tofu or whatever right. shops. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's that contrast is right there, and it makes it um, yeah, just like I said before, like really intoxicating to see this back and forth. Absolutely. Um, have you been to Shibuya lately? The around the station area. Yeah, the the way that's been redeveloped is another example of uh, you know a new uh, city being born within Tokyo is the new uh, iteration of of Shibuya. It's incredible. Right. Um, all of that discussion has made me want to ask you a question that I wasn't intending on asking, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Is Please. there any is there any fiction work on the radar for you in 2021? Fiction writing. Yeah, that's something I've always wanted to get to, and I'd like to uh, really try my hand at that. Um, it's very uh, difficult um, for me, however, to to make a shift from nonfiction to mm -hmm. fiction writing. Sure. It's like, um, you know, if you, let's say you make your bread and butter uh, doing house painting, you paint walls and, you know, exteriors of houses, and then you want to shift into into fine art. <laughs> mm -hmm. It could be kind of disconcerting. Having said that, however, my mother is a is an oil painter in Canada, oh, and nice. um, I look to her for you know inspiration, creativity, and so I'm going to try doing something more in that in that vein. You mentioned songwriting. That's one way I try to you know cultivate uh, creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, pure uh, nonfiction writing. Um, it's fun, but um, sometimes you don't get to be as creative as you want to be. And so these outlets are something that, uh, yeah, I definitely want to explore more this year. You're very creative. You're also a photographer. Yeah, I uh, did a lot more photography uh, in the past. Um, like the image you see uh, behind me, I, I, I took in Shibuya, speaking of Shibuya. Right. And um, it was one of those times where you kind of fall in love with... Uh, the Tokyo cityscape and um, all the, you know, bright lights and neon, et cetera, you know, that kind of thing is, is fun. And so um, photography I do these days, uh, maybe sort of as an adjunct to writing articles, you know, if I'm in a situation uh, where I could take a couple photos, like uh, for example, um, I just wrote a, an article for um, uh, CNBC uh, mm -hmm. news uh, about the new um, Gundam uh, robot down in Yokohama and, of course, when I was there, I took some photos too. Uh, so that has not been published yet, but I'm hoping that it will turn out nicely with the photos because the sun was going down uh, over Yokohama just as I was there. And uh, there was all this sort of steam and all the lights around the giant Gundam. And uh, yeah, it was pretty spectacular. Right on. Okay. Now you've done, uh, you said you were a writer and you also did some journalistic work before you came to Japan. So I'd like to ask you, what's the any differences you might have noticed or challenges you might have noticed being a writer and or journalist here in Japan compared to being a writer and or journalist outside Japan? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in Japan, uh, the way that in, information is distributed is different. And uh, an example of this is, of course, the Kisha Club right. system. Now, as a freelancer, uh, that's not really something that I have to deal with. Um, 
but if you've never heard of the Keisha Club system, it's basically like um, a kind of like information cartel system in mm -hmm. which news is controlled uh, by the establishment. So Keisha Clubs, which uh, mean journalist clubs or press clubs, are these little institutions that are embedded in uh, Japanese um, governments and uh, other organizations. And if you look on, for example, the Wikipedia page for Keisha Club, there's you know, more than a dozen listed for everything from the Imperial Household Agency has a Keisha Club, uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department has a Keisha Club, um, you know, the Liberal Democratic Party has a Keisha Club, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it goes on and on. So the, the problem with the criticism that Keisha Clubs have faced is that they're exclusive. They only admit members of the established major Japanese media. Uh, they uh, traditionally have been closed to say freelancers or you know, smaller magazines, smaller newspapers, and also um, foreign journalists. Now, foreign journalists have made inroads over the years like Reuters and Bloomberg, uh, for example, managed to get into the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange Keisha Club, yeah. I believe some quite a while ago now. Um, but if you're you know, an independent uh, person trying to cover news here, it can be pretty difficult if you're not part of uh, a Keisha Club. Um, for example, uh, some years ago, I was working for IDG News, which is a, an American uh, technology news group. And I was writing some story about, um, it was, a, I believe it was a cyber criminal uh, who committed some fraud or something like that. And uh, he had been arrested. And I want to confirm, I wanted to confirm reports that this person had been arrested by police in, I think it was Kawasaki. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so what did I do? I called up the police in Kawasaki and uh, I said, yeah, I'm a representing an American media outlet. I'd just like to confirm this happened. You arrested the suspect and the person on the other end of the phone just could not process. It was like I walked out of a UFO. Like, who is this person calling us up out of the blue, asking whether we've done something like arrest someone like this is not part of the Keisha Club system. And, and uh, basically, I... After delays and delays, I got a begrudging uh, yes, an arrest was made. That's all we're going to tell you. So if you're not part of the system like that, it's easy to be uh, uh, shut out. Uh, and um, the Keisha Club system is very controversial. But, um, you know, the benefit for the government and other entities is that they can control the flow of information. Um, meanwhile, uh, journalists in the Keisha Club itself will... Um, self-police or self-censor them uh, their own activities sometimes because right. they have this kind of horse trading system where they write on a blackboard like who's going to do what who's going to cover what who's going to get what kind of uh, scoop perhaps this time so the net result is that um, the public is underserved i think in terms of the information they get by this uh, kind of cartel and um, there have been, uh, there's been more criticism of it in, with the advent of blogging and other mm -hmm. forms of uh, you know, Twitter, that kind of thing. So um, I think that uh, it can't last forever. Uh, they're gradually chipping away at the Keisha Club system, but it still is a, a big uh, hindrance for people doing news today in Japan if they're not part of the, um, the, the Keisha Clubs themselves.
Well, thank you for that overview. That that's a, a good overview. Uh, do you know of any other similar systems uh, outside of Japan? Maybe not uh, quite as clubs. Yeah, there are clubs that do exist outside of Japan um, that uh, can be restrictive, but maybe not as much. Japan stands out for for being quite exclusive with this system. For example, um, you know, in the U.S. government, they have you know briefings yes. that are given to certain reporters. And of course, even in other, in many countries, they have like a press credential system. You have to get credentials uh, to be able to attend certain, say, press conferences or public unveilings or openings of some whatever uh, facility. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Japan system didn't come out of nowhere, but um, it, it is quite restrictive compared to other countries. Right. Um- you sort of have touched on this uh, a little bit in one of your previous answers, but I was going to ask you about as a professional writer and particularly, excuse me, a freelance professional writer, um, what it has been or is continues to be the influence of media channels such as blogs, um, personal websites, social media, people who are not professional writers, but are putting out a lot of content. How has that changed the landscape for a freelance writer, especially here in Japan, where it's starting to boom, like like more than much more than before. Absolutely. Um, it's both um, an advantage and a disadvantage, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, uh, you it's easy to have your own channel, your own platform now with uh, the web, YouTube, whatever you want. So if you like, you can just go in and write anything you want to and, and perhaps you can build up an audience. And uh, maybe you can break stories uh, eventually. That's wonderful. And maybe you can eventually generate your own income by doing that. Excuse me. Um, On the other hand, if you are just a traditional journalist, that's a lot more competition for you. Uh, Possibly you may may get scooped um, by some of these upstarts, uh, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Uh, But back to the other side of the coin, I did a story some years ago about uh, one of these uh, sort of startup organization. Well, it wasn't a blogging uh, type of arrangement. It was more of a, a formal uh, commitment to, um, uh, you know, free uh, press and uncovering stories that uh, the established uh, media in Japan did not want to uncover. And that's called Waseda Chronicle. Waseda Chronicle was um, founded by a couple of people who came from establishment media in Japan, they were not satisfied with uh, the amount of, um, you know, restrictions they faced and, and in some cases self-censorship that was being imposed um, within the newsroom that they came from. So they decided, okay, we're going to leave those jobs and uh, bye-bye to those salaries that we had. And we're going to start Waseda Chronicle, um, which is a kind of volunteer led um uh, organization website that's been um, doing stories. For example, one that I uh, remember involved, um, I believe, uh, kickbacks, uh, fraud involving prominent uh, media and uh, PR companies, ad companies in Japan. So, um, so that's one way that um, you know gaps in the establishment media are being filled or needs are being met by people using you know these relatively new technologies. And, uh, and just, you know, ignoring the corporate power structures that existed in the past and going on their own and doing a great job. 
for Japanese media outlets, uh, Yomiuri Shimbun is just one example that comes to mind, who also produce an English language version, sometimes even a daily English language version, or often a daily English language version. Do they generally work only with freelancers or do they have in-house staff? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's a mixture from mm -hmm. what I can see. Um, so Japanese uh, news companies um, tend to try to straddle both worlds. In, in other words, uh, serving the domestic market, but also trying to serve uh, a foreign readership as well. Mm -hmm. And so Kyoto News, where yes. I used to work a long time ago, uh, is one example. So they have a, um, a very extensive nationwide network of bureaus. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyoto News is like a, a news agency. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's like Associated Press in the States or um, Canadian Press in Canada, uh, for example, mm -hmm. uh, AFP in front, etc. So, yes. uh, so they have a na nationwide network, and so they're generating tons of news in Japanese, and they're they're quite good at doing breaking news. There's a big earthquake or other disaster some somewhere. They're on that because they got a bureau not too far away. Um, that being said, they took or they do take part of their domestically generated output in Japanese and they translate some of that, like the important stories about the prime minister, etc. And they put it out in English and they have people editing that, which is what I did. And uh, in our little division of Kyoto, that's what, that's what our job was to do. Meanwhile, some of the other people in that part of Kyoto were generating original stories in English, and, and they let me write a couple of original features in English too. And so I would think that other, uh, you mentioned Yomiuri, uh, they probably do a mix of both. Like they translate some of their copy. Maybe they have a couple of freelancers or in-house people who do original uh, stories in English, perhaps, or even Chinese is, is very important these days too. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think it's a mix of, um, of uh, trying to uh, get that balance between domestic and foreign. Another thing I should mention is that there, a couple of questions ago, you asked me what's different between the news here and overseas. Aside from the Kisha Club system, I would say that the expectations of the reader mm -hmm. Person who's consuming the news in, let's say, Canada compared to uh, Japan are, are different, totally different. That's why when I was working at Kyoto doing editing these stories, they would just be translated straight, like Japanese into English. And, and for the reader, they would be lacking in context of what does this mean to me? I don't know what this means. Or sometimes the lead. You know, the most important part of the story would be buried in, you know, the last paragraph of the translation. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had to, you know, flip them and rewrite them, et cetera, et cetera. Try to, meanwhile, trying not to uh, antagonize the chief editor of that section because they didn't want it to go too far away from the Japanese original. And yet we wanted to make it more relevant and um, contextualized for overseas readers. So there's this continual sort of tug of war between the two Japanese and the English. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so if you if you read news in Japanese, the, the, it's it's abbreviated, the, much is understood without being said. Uh, for example, sources are often not named. Where does mm -hmm. this information come from? Oh, it, just, it doesn't say in Japanese. It just says like, it is understood that this, mm -hmm. this is happening. So the standards are different. And so people, 
working in that sort of cross-cultural cross milieu, translators also, you know, people who are translating, let's say, novels from Japanese into English, they also have to play with the differences uh, in what is expected in a reader's mind in Japanese versus an overseas reader's mind. Sure. Could you also maybe explain what is and what does the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan do, the FCCJ? <laughs> I think you are a member of that, if I check the list correctly. Yeah, I am a member of the hmm. uh, FCCJ. And uh, basically, it's a, uh, a club for... Uh, originally, it was founded in, at the end of World War II, 1945, when... Uh, the American occupation began, the, the Allied occupation began of Japan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of foreign reporters were streaming into the country to, to see what was going on here in this devastated, bombed out uh, capital, Tokyo. And they formed this organization called Foreign Correspondents of Japan. So it's a, it's a press club. What is a press club? This is different from a Kisha club. A mm -hmm. press club here is kind of a social organization, like a salon perhaps, which also uh, hosts news events like press conferences. Okay. Um, the one big problem, though, is that uh, after Japan entered um, its um, stagnant period, after the collapse of the bubble economy, it became less of an interesting news story for overseas news organizations. They started looking at China much more. They started sending correspondence to China much more. And um, the problem is that the number of journalists at the FCCJ started declining. So they had to bring in a lot more non-journalists, people who are just business people or somehow interested in media or people who thought that uh, being a member of the FCCJ was something um, prestigious and, and, uh, and interesting. So they did that. So now there are many more non-journalists than journalists at the club. However, really? uh, the FCCJ still does host um, uh, press events like press conferences. Mm -hmm. And the good thing about those events is that you often get to hear uh, the voices of people who are, you would say, perhaps underrepresented or ignored in Japan. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, often they'll host a, um, a series of, of press conferences, for example, getting two sides of the story. Like recently there was a um, uh, an issue, a scandal in, I think it was Gunma Prefecture, if I'm not mistaken, in which um, a member of the prefectural assembly, a woman said she'd been uh, uh, sexually molested uh, by um, another member. Uh, and uh, so the FCJ decided to um, hold uh, one conference by her and another conference by the accused party. And, uh, and you know, you get both sides of, of the situation uh, that the FCCJ, to its credit, is one of the only forums in Japan in which you can have this kind of um, both sides of the story is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so so that's a great merit. And they, you know, they stream these uh, press events and um, it's, a, it's a great way to gain more insight into, say, for example, if you're interested in, in the, you know, the latest um uh, political developments, economic developments, that kind of thing. Um, that being said, the FCCJ is not uh, what it used to be, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, it's carrying on. And um, if you're interested in media and uh, current events in Japan, I, I would say you should check it out. 
Thank you for that. I want to move on to a topic. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'd like to move on to a topic that's very close to your heart, robots, um, particularly uh, Japan's excellence in robots and the human-facing kind of robots, service robots. I know it's obviously something that you like very much because it's your Twitter handle. Um, it also is a topic of a book that you wrote called Loving the Machine, the Art and Science of Japanese Robots, and um, which does a very good job of covering the history of robots in Japan. Um, I notes, noticed that in the United States, a lot of robot research, R&D and, and development, is done in what, what I'm calling functional robots, used for various specific purposes. The example I always have in mind when I say that is um, after the Fukushima disaster in 2011, there was not um, enough uh, Japanese development technology of functional robots to get right inside the reactor buildings and do some of the tasks that no human being could do. So Japan had to rely on a lot of U.S. technology uh, for those robots to get in there. But when it comes to human-facing robots and service robots and companion robots, Japan is number one in the world. And that's kind of what you covered in your book. Could you cover maybe some of the major points, the main uh, aspects of, of the book, which I read a long time ago, um, and it's beautifully illustrated. There's lots of photos and, and, and diagrams in there, and I think it was very popular. Um, could you cover some of the, the main points of your book? Yeah, well, thank you uh, for those kind words. Much appreciated. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say that uh, I'm a little bit more of a critic than a fan of robots uh, in Japan these days because I don't think they've lived up to their potential. Mm -hmm. uh, but just going back to my book, Loving the Machine, it's uh, an inquiry into why Japanese people love robots and why perhaps they don't find them uh, scary, uh, like in, in some cultures uh, in the West or, you know, the science fiction uh, prototype of archetype of the Terminator uh, versus mm -hmm. his Japanese counterpart, um, Astro Boy, for example. So the, right. where did this, uh, this archetype of cute, friendly robots that help humans instead of try to kill them come from? <laughs> well, my book looks at the history of the robot development in Japan in terms of both science fiction and um, engineering and the cultural context, which um, includes uh, religion. Now, uh, in terms of religion, uh, Japan is not a very religious country per se, but I would argue that uh, religion, religious traditions and ways of thinking in Buddhism and Shinto are sort of in the background of the culture. Sure mm -hmm. And uh, one aspect of that is, is animism, which is the ability to assign uh, human-like um, characteristics to inanimate objects, be they uh, waterfalls or impressive rocks or trees or robots. Uh, and so that is a sort of cultural tendency, I would say, that exists in Japan. Uh, that married with uh, science fiction tropes such as uh, the friendly hero robot Astro Boy mm -hmm. uh, helping people instead of running after them and, and trying to, to uh, obliterate them <laughs> mm -hmm. is something that became, you know, very um, established in the 20th century with uh, uh, successful animated franchises like uh, Astro Boy and then, you know, Mazinger Z and uh, Gundam. Uh, Gundam is a little bit different. Uh, it's a sort of vehicle style robot that you can pilot. 
but it, it's still something that uh, uplifts the humans that are in it and makes them heroic. Uh, and so um, we have a combination of forces that uh, create this sort of, uh, you know, gestalt around robotics here in Japan. Meanwhile, there are socioeconomic needs to have robots here. The shrinking population and the shrinking workforce and uh, the lack of immigration means that we need more robots to make things and to serve people. Uh, so there is tremendous uh, potential for the robots, for robots in Japan because of Japan's incredible uh, expertise in, in, you know, engineering and uh, uh, mechatronics and uh, craftsmanship and their uh, ability or their willingness to interact with friendly robots. And uh, you put a face and a cute smile on a machine and it's something that can be easily received by people and there are stories of, of robots in, in factories uh, being you know, modded uh, and made to look really cute and given names, even uh, initiation or welcoming ceremonies that involve Shinto purification rites. And uh, I was once at a recycling plant uh, where they were taking apart appliances, uh, TVs and refrigerators and that sort of thing. And they had robots um, scooting along the ground, uh, transporting uh, objects like um, were they TV screens, something like that. And anyway, the, what I remember about these, these uh, autonomously guided robots, um, they're almost like those uh, little robots you see in Star Wars, like in the Death Star, where they're walking through the Death Star and you see these little robots squeaking along the corridors there, that kind of thing. These were all sort of modded and they were painted and they had like, you know, cute eyes or feathers or something like that. And so they, they, the staff had gone to the trouble of making these robots cute, which was uh, striking. Uh, that being said, um, you mentioned Fukushima. Mm -hmm. uh, when Fukushima uh, happened, when the, the great earthquake struck in 2011, um, I was in North America and I was really interested in writing about this. So I wrote an article for, for CNET uh, News about this, which I was working for at the time. And um, I immediately called Tokyo Electric Power Company and asked them, okay, you have a crippled uh, couple of cr crippled reactors at um, uh, Fukushima Daiichi Power Plant. Um, do you have any robots that are that are uh, ready to go in there right now and sort things out? And they said, robots? Well, no, no, we don't have any robots. No. I was like, what? So that was such a, a disappointment after decades, decades of seeing Japan, um, you know, uh, proclaim its expert expertise in robotics and its willingness to use and develop robots in not only factories and daily life situations, but also emergency disaster situations like crippled nuclear power plants. And, and as a matter of fact, there was a program in Japan mm. to develop such robots that could work in crippled nuclear power plants years ago, but it was shut down allegedly because they didn't want the public to have the perception that something could go wrong mm. at a nuclear power plant that would necessitate having a robot there. Unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. So since then, you know, um, I, I've seen other robot systems that uh, could have been, should have been in Japan. Like you take the most successful 
commercial, um, like say household robot, wasn't developed in Japan. It was developed in in America. That's Roomba. You know, yes. millions of units sold. Mm -hmm. Why didn't Japan uh, develop that robot? Japan should have. Right. Uh, I think it was almost too in love with this concept of creating Astro Boy, of creating a human-like bipedal robot. It did try to do that with robots like Asimo, mm -hmm. uh, Honda's Asimo, uh, but that has that has been you know very impressive and and dexterous and uh, and quite remarkable in the way that it moves. But it's been relegated to the role of sort of a cultural or sort of a corporate ambassador, you know, uh, for Honda, which mm -hmm. is great. But meanwhile, what's happening with a company like, uh, you know, uh, Boston Dynamics, mm -hmm. they've created some incredible, uh, even more dexterous uh, and even more impressive humanoid robots that can do backflips and dancing. And, and they, they just leave Asimo in the dust. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I think uh, Japan has to uh, wake up a little bit and um, start making robots that uh, people really need uh, and, and can really help them. And I think we've seen uh, a sort of realization of that in uh, the, the pandemic. There, there's been greater need for robots to help and work with people uh, to, you know, reduce the possibility of, you know, uh, transmission of the virus and so i hope japan japanese robotics companies do more to create robots that people want to buy makes sense um i was actually going to ask you about that if we had the time on predictions for 2021 with covid19 it has not been um, a promising first three days of 2021 record cases each day <clears throat> possibly a state of emergency being declared in the next week what do you think is going to happen with that I think the because um, you just wrote an article for Time. I'm just what is it? That's right. I wrote ago, an article for Time about this yes. uh, just before the uh, the current pleas by Tokyo Prefecture and other prefectures to mm -hmm. have the central government declare a state of emergency. Notice how the uh, prefectures themselves, as far as I understand, don't have the power to do so, which is another big problem. Mm -hmm. However, um, Japan really wants to host the Olympics successfully this coming summer. That's what it all comes down to, I think, huh? Basically, well, that's a big part of it, I would say. And so if they declare a state of emergency now, uh, it may cast an even greater shadow on having the Olympics. In addition to that, even though vaccines are being, people are being immunized in, in America, in Canada, in in the uk in other countries uh in japan um there's no vaccines are not on the immediate horizon here uh, we may see some people getting uh vaccinated in late february mm -hmm. so that's almost two months away now um uh, according to bloomberg um general population may not see uh vaccinations in japan until i, I think it was late june which oh, is wow. incredible. That's just before the Olympics will start. So me living in Japan here, you and I mm -hmm. may not get a jab until what, July, August? Who knows? I think that's that's crazy. Uh that that's that so other long. industrialized countries are are doing it and yet we are we're gonna face a lag of six months or more. It's uh it's really unfortunate. So 
I think that uh, in Japan, we'll see um, the pandemic uh, going through more waves mm-hmm. um, according to how the government is reacting. You know, Japan has done better than many other countries. It's true. However, I think Japan could have done much better still uh, when you look at, you know, really amazing performers like New Zealand, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Japan had the potential. It seems to me inevitable that the way to reduce transmissions and, and flatten the curve is you just have to have really, really strong uh, policies in place for controlling transmission at places like, you know, people coming into the country via through airports. There was a, um, a, a guy uh, writing on Twitter about his experience flying from the UK to South Korea. Mm-hmm. And how the UK was uh, the airport, maybe Heathrow was totally shambolic with hardly anyone wearing masks. You get to, to uh, the Seoul airport and it's like multiple layers of, of checks. You don't even get out of the airport quarantine hotel for 10 hours or something after taking, uh, you know, test. I think that this fellow was tested twice, uh, once for the, the virus and then for the variant. Right. And so you have to have rigorous procedures. You have to be overwhelming in your attempts to control, to get this thing under under control. And um, Japan, I think, has been lucky because uh, people do tend to wear face masks here, even when it's uh, not an epidemic. You know, we see them riding on the subways, et cetera, when it's hay fever season. Right. So right. the mask wearing came somewhat naturally to people here. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we could talk about all kinds of possible factors like, you know, Japanese people don't hug each other really, or shaking hands is not the norm versus bowing, et cetera, et cetera. So I tend to think that instead of um, the government cluster-based tracking uh, policy, it's more a matter of luck and uh, the practices, perhaps the cultural practices of people here that have kept it relatively in check compared to, say, the United States. So I, I, I expect to see uh, more waves. We're gonna, maybe we'll have a fourth and fifth wave here in Japan. We're in the third now that yes. uh, will continue before uh, we get this thing under control. And it may still crop up uh, here and there uh, in the fall, winter next year. I just hope we're not in the same situation a year from now, social distancing, uh, not being able to see friends and family, not being able to travel. Sure. You know, it really wears you down after. Uh, on a personal level, it wears you down. And on a business level, a lot of small shops are, they're gone. I mean, they're just not going not gonna to make it. Um, I know I'm trying to be sensitive of your time. I'd like to end with my final question for today. Uh, again, thanks for your time. And it's as a person who covers so much about Japan and such a broad range of topics, um, if you had one thing about Japan that you wanted people outside Japan who've never been here to know about this place, what would it be? You can say as many as you want, but I thought one would be easier. Yeah, well, um, I would say there are are multiple things. Uh, Certainly, if you're a visitor to Japan, I would encourage you to try to go to the uh, more remote uh, corners of the country if you Mm -hmm. can like the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Ogasawara uh, Islands, for instance, is an absolutely rewarding place. 
um, uh, you know, for example, an island like Yakushima, which is, is famous, and people do go there in Kagoshima pre Prefecture is amazing uh, mm -hmm. to see the giant Jomonsugi uh, trees there, etc. Instead of just going to like Tokyo and, and Kyoto, which is the, the traditional uh, route, um, I would also um, recommend them to of course, spend um, time uh, at an onsen, ryokan, out in the countryside. So for visitors, as far as that goes, that's, you know, and, and of course, experiencing not only the great food, um, hospitality, uh, craftsmanship, uh, if possible. There's just some stunning examples of um, creative traditions here in Japan. In terms of thinking about Japan, it's very easy to look at Japan from overseas and see what seems to be uh, an almost ideal society. Mm. Um, it goes back to what I talked about uh, in the beginning. It's a kind of place that you can uh, satisfy your escapist fantasies in to some extent. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, like I said, it has a fascinating history. It was a feudal uh, state until uh, not too long ago, historically speaking. Um, with that in mind, uh, it's, it's easy to idealize and romanticize Japan, which is fun. We all do it to a certain extent. Sure. Um, we do it too. But when, yeah, when we, when we do that, we have to be careful, though, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on here that um, people may find uh, objectionable uh, and um, lacking. And uh, just to pick one out of so many examples, I mean, Japan doesn't do very well in terms of gender equality. Mm -hmm. and the status of women here, for example, in parliament or leading corporations, etc. I think it's trying to do better. It has a lot more uh, catching up to do. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, it's fun to wear the rose-colored glasses uh, when you're in Kyoto, um, but also try to look a little bit deeper and see about the forces that are shaping Japan beneath the mask, so to speak. Sure. If you can do that, you'll be rewarded with a greater insight and understanding that comes along with reading about the history of Japan. Mm. And ultimately, your experience with Japan will be all the more satisfying, I think, uh, instead of just seeing it as a, on a superficial level. That's my take. Anyway. I agree 100% with that. Uh, Tim, uh, can I call you Tim? Absolutely, please. Okay. Tim Horniak, thank you very much for joining us on the Ranjiro Japan podcast. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you again for having me on the show. Uh, it's been a delight and I wish you every success with this uh, series. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us on the Ranjiro Japan podcast. For more insights on Japan from people who know Japan, be sure to subscribe to the podcast right now and check out our website at www.ronjirujapan.com That's www.ronjirujapan.com Links to all our content are on the website and in the description for this episode, including links to Facebook and Twitter and our YouTube channel, which also has a variety of videos in addition to regular episodes. Please subscribe, follow and share. I look forward to talking to you again in the next episode. From Ronjiro Japan in Tokyo, I've been your host JT. Until next time, o genki de ne.